0: Welcome to the Tax Alpha Solutions Podcast, hosted by Matt Chansey. Matt is a tax consultant, author, and certified financial planner with almost two decades helping his clients grow their net worth. On the show, Matt brings together an array of specialists to share with you their experience and success along with strategies of the 1%. Matt Chancy is with Coastal One, member FINRA SIPC. And now, here's your host, Matt Chancy.
1: All right. Well, hello, everybody, and thanks for tuning in today. This is Matt Chancey and this is the Tax Alpha podcast. Today on the podcast, we have Barat Canadia, And Barat Canadia has valued over 2,000 businesses and signed off on assets worth up to $2.6 trillion with a T dollars in value. He has appraised unique assets like the Golden Gate Bridge, the Atlanta Airport, Uber, Airbnb, Yahoo, the Brooklyn Bridge, the Mirage Casino in Las Vegas, and many others. Barat is the founder of Veristrat, a company that helps startup founders and VCs by telling them what their companies are worth. He lives in the San Francisco Bay Area with his family and enjoys sailing, golfing, skiing, and horseback riding. And he has a YouTube channel, What's It Worth? Barat? thanks so much for joining us today. Matt, thank you so much for having me. I look forward to
0: this conversation.
1: Absolutely. So, you know, I guess the question that begs my mind when I hear your resume is: number one, is I didn't even know people would value some of those things, right?
0: <laughs> yes, yes. You know, traditionally, most people think of valuations uh, for maybe a deal or some kind of a transaction, right? And uh, they're not wrong; they are right, but that is only just a partial view. You need, uh, you could need valuations for taxes right? If you need to file taxes, Uncle Sam always wants his cut. And before you write Uncle Sam a check, you need to know how big of a check to write him. So you could need valuations for taxes or for insurance, right? Or for accounting. Um, You do a lot of private equity work. So say if a private equity fund invests, say, $100 in a company, they need to show their LPs what that $100 is worth on a quarterly basis or an annual basis, however that is. And since it's all unrealized gain, um, it's all based on valuations. So
1: valuations can be
0: for multiple purposes.
1: Very nice. No, Okay, so now you gave me a good segue, a question I want to ask now. So I think most people in the public markets understand how value is dictated by the price of an underlying security, right? But the private markets, which you referenced right there, particularly a startup VC, right? Very different. There is no supply and demand economic factors that are controlling the pricing. So how do you, how do you get to that? Where does that come from?
0: great point. So say for example, you know the example that I give is uh, I don't have anything here. So say this, right? Imagine this is a sphere. If this is a public company, you're looking at the same object, I'm looking at the same object, we're all looking at rounds from our perspective, right? Whereas if you're looking at my phone, this is a private company, you're looking at the back of my phone, I'm looking at the front, somebody's looking at the top, somebody's looking at the bottom. Same object, four different perspectives. That's how a private company works. So for a public company, you know, on a minute by minute basis, what the valuation is, because that's what the market tells you. So it could be for tax or accounting or um, insurance or transaction. It doesn't matter. The same value is used generally. Whereas for a private company
1: could have four different valuations because it depends on the perspective. Sure. That is a, not only is that a great way to explain it, that's a great visual. Never heard that before. So I, like I, so everybody, that's, if you're just listening to this, uh, go and check out the YouTube version <laughs> so, you can, so you can see the visuals that went through it. Very interesting. So how do you become the person that when the Golden Gate Bridge needs to be appraised, that they know you're the guy to call for that job? The
0: best things in life happen to you when you least expect them. I wanted a job out of college and uh, I didn't want anything to do with engineering and I wanted a job in finance, but who in their right mind is going to give a 21 year old kid with an engineering degree, a job in finance. Well, I just needed one person and I found one person who became my boss and he trusted me, he liked me and he gave me all kinds of opportunities. So um, I had to appraise all these kinds of unique assets and, um, After 9-11. So once 9-11 happened, all these large infrastructure assets around the world, they're underwritten by somebody. They're all insured. And the people who are underwriting them, they're shit their pants. They're like, oh my God, if Twin Towers could come down, we might have to write a check for the Brooklyn Bridge one day do we know what it's appraised at? Are we collecting enough premiums to justify collecting more premiums they need to, to get an appraisal so that they could tell their clients that, hey, this thing is worth a lot more than we thought it was. And at that time, I worked for a company called American Appraisal, which was contracted by the underwriter, that time Lloyds of London, to appraise all these unique assets. And my boss liked me and there were about 200 assets and he took out about 25 of them and said, these are yours, Bharat. So I got like the most unique or weird assets in the world to appraise.
1: (laughs) That's um, a terrible way to start that, like an event like 9-11 for people to realize in their consciousness that, that things aren't worth only maybe their replacement value, right? But yet it turned into a great opportunity for you and a very interesting story. And I'm sure you got to see some really neat things.
0: Yeah, and imagine a brown guy back in 2002, walking around New York City, <laughs> asking for uh, blueprints and access to restricted areas for the Grand Central Station. And, you know, yeah, you, you think I got some looks? <laughs> you think your boss knew that was going to happen? When oh, he said- <laughs> I think he was just laughing away. He knew I would finish it, so he gave
1: it to me. He's like, if this kid can pull this off. Right? <laughs> yeah, I was like 22 year old. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. That's pretty funny. So you were with American Appraisal. Talk to me about your decision to ultimately leave American Appraisal. And then today you have founded Veristrat, right? So there might have been, that's a long period of time based on what you told me, but you know what caused you to leave American Appraisal? What amazed you to go do your own thing? And then the foundation of where you're at today?
0: Well, you know, after a while, Russo's got to come home to Proust, right? I mean, it's like, after a while, you got to graduate, you got to sort of move on. Um, It was a great company, but, uh, you know, I had my aspirations. So I went off on my own and God has been kind. Um, and I'm just grateful.
1: Yeah, good, good. It's good that opportunities present itself. And I'm sure you know, you weren't bashful to, to take advantage of those opportunities and reach out for them when they when they presented themselves. So Question on that. Um, I kind of had a question and then I pivoted a little bit and now my brain went away from it. So, when a company is just getting started, I guess. So, tell me, when did you start Veristrat? 2010. 2010. Okay. So, you almost a decade with the other appraisal company and you spun off a of Veristrat. So, and then now it became more about value and company. So, let's talk about the valuation of a private company. What do I am familiar with from being in my space? things that you apply discounts to the valuation, right? Lack of marketability, lack of control, and other things like that. So talk about some of the things that, um, I think it would be interesting from both sides, right? Things that increase, unexpectedly, maybe increase the valuation of something that an average person wouldn't talk about. Or the other side of that, what are some ways that you would discount valuations and reasons? Like, because estate planning are reasons that people discount assets, right? I'm not, and you may or may not have, we discount assets sometimes for Roth conversions. I'm not sure if you're for, okay, you're shaking your head there. Uh, no, no,
0: not the Roth conversions. Sorry. Uh, I meant estate planning. Like, you know, if somebody owns an LLC and they want a portion of an LLC, that's, that's a simple discount for lack of marketability. Yep. And it's a nice discount in some cases.
1: That's right. That's right. And it's real and it's bona fide and it's legitimate. And sometimes clients don't understand that. They're like, how can you possibly do that? But it's in the code, right? Talk about that.
0: Very accepted. And in fact, somebody came to me recently, um, their client has a partial ownership into a private equity fund and they just um, donated a portion of those shares to a donor advisory fund and uh, they didn't take the proper write off. They only took a parcel of it. It's like, okay, wait a second, dude, you can do a lot more than this here. So people just don't know many times. And sometimes CPAs don't know.
1: Sometimes CPAs don't know. (laughs) just want to make sure I heard that. (laughs) Excuse me. Um, (laughs) So uh, look, in defense, I say all the time, it's really not their job to know, right? That's why you have a job as an appraisal specialist, right? Like it's not their job to know. So it's unrealistic. They should know that things can appraise for more and can appraise for less, right? But to understand the methodology behind it all is why an expert like you has your own business. You
0: know, People should be asking questions and some people are better at asking questions and some people are not. Um, I just wish CPAs were better at asking questions.
1: I think most of them feel like they're coming from a good place and they feel like it's their job to protect their clients. And if a client doesn't do something they have protected their client from that thing. Now, they might have protected them from something good as well as from something bad, right? Because of the fear of the unknown. And I find that in the, uh, like I said, uh, the, the IRA Roth conversion space, we look at assets and discount them for the same reasons that you're talking about for estate planning purpose. Somebody's got a really big IRA thinking about converting it from an IRA to a Roth. You're like, well, why does it have to be at fair market value? Is there a precedent for getting a 30, 40% 30, 40% discount on the valuation of that from a conversion standpoint. So we've applied it in that way. And I just know every time I explain that to a CPA, they're like, you do what? <laughs> so Yeah. Um, you know,
0: private companies need valuations all the time. So yeah, we help them with those. I mean, you know, or if you've got something extraordinary oddball that most of the appraisers wouldn't know how to touch. If you've got a copper mine or a power plant or a port, um, or a dam, or a bridge, or something, or an airport, or something weird that most other appraisers won't even know where to begin. Sure. Somebody came to me recently with a gold mine. You know, I I'm one of the few appraisers in the country who has done enough interesting, unique things that I'm not I'm not afraid to roll up my sleeves and really get into it.
1: To hire now, let's talk about you specifically. What's the value of the asset need to be on an ish kind of basis? Are we talking about something worth a million or more? I mean, the things you're describing are worth millions or hundreds of millions or more. At what point do you have to draw a line in the sand and go, here's the type of stuff that we work on?
0: Great question. I mean, you know, some of the projects that I described to you, you know, I don't do those every day. Sure. Nobody eats steak every day unless, you know, of course, you're in Texas. So... You know, I have uh, projects that are more like bread and butter for me. You know, a company has got to be worth at least a couple of million, you know, for them to make sense to bring me in. Otherwise, they don't really need to. I could just give them a back of the envelope type of thing that, hey, just enjoy yourself. You know, there's no big deal. Here's your valuation. But, you know, if they need something that's going to hold up in court or that they've got a civil uh, conflict or they need to file taxes, then, you know, uh, it just... Increases my exposure, which increases my work, which means I need to write a thicker report, which means I just need to spend more time and do better diligence, which increases the cost for me.
1: Sure. So, you mentioned this. Who are the people that typically challenge evaluation? If if you say this is worth X, who's going to challenge that? Um, IRS
0: counterparties, right? So, if two partners want to exit. Um, buyer or seller, right? Many times a buyer and seller come to me and the seller says, I think it's worth a hundred million. And the seller goes, the buyer goes, no, I think it's worth 80 million. Well, I just say, okay, split the difference. They're like, no, 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 no. We want you to crunch the numbers. I said, okay, do you really want me to do it? Is it worth your time? They say, yes. And I crunch the numbers and most times more than any, you know, the number might be very different. And then both of them are displeased. Or at least one of them is. Sure.
1: Does a husband and wife count as a counterparty? Uh,
0: Yes, any counterparty, any civil civil, suit, their divorce settlement, right? So, yeah, definitely.
1: Right. Sometimes I'm I'm sure in in some of the big fancy divorces, there's stuff that's hard to determine the valuation of and if it's going to one side of the ledger or the other, right? It's not the
0: valuation determination that becomes difficult. It's uh, accessing data. People try to hide things from you that's not fun to deal with. Numbers are easy. Numbers fall into place. Numbers don't lie. People lie.
1: Yeah, yeah, understood that. So who initially, who typically, so all the stuff that we're talking about, so let's go back and talk about, so let's assume the IRS was going to challenge something. And let me bring up an example of something that the IRS has challenged from a valuation standpoint. I'm sure you're familiar with the, with the concept of conservation of real estate, right? No, I'm not, tell me more. Okay, Uh, so like if somebody is going to make a charitable donation for real estate for a conservation easement type program, one value of it was paid. It's the difference between the highest and best use valuation. And there's typically a, a deduction between the delta of the two. You know, the IRS is clearly in those cases challenging, you know, the amount that they would say that somebody could write off. How do you justify that stuff? So I just bring that up from an example is to say, I know of things that were the has challenged valuation. How do you as an appraiser go back in and defend those challenges to an appraisal in a case where the IRS might be involved?
0: Um, There are two things. One is them challenging and one is them penalizing. Mm -hmm. Just because they've challenged something doesn't mean you've lost the battle. Challenging something or questioning or auditing, whatever you want to call it, that just means they want more detail. They want to look under the hood, which is fine because if I've done my job correctly, I have everything that they need to be looking at anyway. Or they just want to sit down with you and, you know, poke a few holes and ask you a few questions and see and pressure test you. That's fine. That's not a problem. The challenging or the audit, that's not a problem. I can hold up against that. The problem happens when there's a penalty. That's a problem happen. And that's when it's not good for anybody.
1: Sure. Sure. And I love that you connected that dot, that a challenge is an audit and an audit's not necessarily a terrible thing. It's just somebody asking some more questions about what you did and why you did it. Right.
0: Yeah, that's it. So my job is to basically, when I rep- write a report for IRS, I just presume it's going to be challenged. So I write it in a way that, dude, I don't want to talk to you. Whatever, whatever I wanted to say, whatever I had to say, it's in the fucking report, read it.
1: Yeah, I get it. Is there an amount where an appraisal would have to differ so greatly from the actual underlying value of an asset that the that the IRS would penalize somebody? For example, if an appraisal came in that said it was worth 100 million and the IRS audited challenged it and then said, no, we think it's worth 50. Is there a point where they would say, "Okay, this is a penalty because that's too big of a discrepancy?
0: Not a penalty. That's a challenge for sure. Um, Penalty happens when you're not able to defend what they're challenging or you're not able to defend the audit. Um, And generally things get audited if the not the percentage difference, but if the magnitude of what they think and what it is, is big enough for it to matter, you know, half a million bucks, a million bucks is probably a good place. You know sure. where the delta is like, hey, if the IRS thinks this thing is worth five million, and I've said it's worth three million, and it's a two million delta, oh well, there there might be a challenge.
1: Enough to justify the the reasonable compensation for the IRS auditor that's looking into your file and then some.
0: Correct. And what I do is my secret weapon is uh, one of my mentors is a former or retired IRS evaluation director. So the guy who used to direct the department of valuation people within the IRS, he's my mentor. So he reviews my reports before I send him out and I pay him for it. Mm-hmm. But once he's reviewed it, okay, I'm good. If it's good for him, it's good for me. And I've never had an issue. And, and this is what I learned from him. He said, whatever you have to say about the report, about the asset that you're appraising, put it all in the report. Call nothing back. Let the IRS dig through it. So when they do challenge you, you go to them and say, look at page 85, section so-and-so. Look at page 144, section so-and-so. So So they look like assholes to everybody else. You don't be an asshole. You still be
1: nice, but keep quoting back to your report each time, each time. Well, it's like Sun Tzu. It's like the art of war. If you know what they're going to look for and you just make sure that you can account for all the stuff that they were going to look for, that they were going to attack, then hey. Yeah. So that's why I just put everything in there before upfront. And the
0: problem starts to happen, not because of the IRS, because of the client, because the client says, I think this thing is worth $8 million. And I'm like, no, it's not worth it. It's worth 11. Well, I think it's worth 8 million. I need you to justify it. Yeah, I don't work with those kind of people um, mm-hmm. because it's one thing to have an opinion, but it's one thing to convince yourself of something. And if somebody's made up their mind, it's impossible to make them change their mind unless they want to. So that's the Achilles' heel in doing tax valuations. You know, you don't want to work with clients like that. Sure, sure. I right, sometimes not the problem is the clients.
1: Oh, understood. I would tell you it's probably more times the clients and not because they had a goal or an intention. So let me ask this. What percentage of clients that reach out and contact you have an unrealistic estimation of what they want the value of that asset to be either greater than or less than for whatever purposes before you actually dig in? So this is my sniff
0: test. I always ask the client, what do you think this thing is worth? And they say, I don't know, 5 million. And then I just say, well, okay, great. Sound, yeah, that doesn't sound so bad. Why? And I just start peeling the onion. There's mm-hmm. something else. And I say, oh, help me understand that. Tell me more. Tell me why. I want to get to that golden nugget. Why? Tell me why this thing is worth $5 million, according to you. And 80% of the time, it comes down to, My neighbor's cousin's daughter sold her business for 4X. So my business is worth at least 5X. And I get to that logic. I'm like, okay, so basically it's not worth $5 million. So that's bullshit. Right, right. So I know I'm starting from ground zero, which is good. So I'm just level setting everything to zero
1: yeah it's not be, it's not founded in any logical rational reason of valuation it's yeah. just a a wag a wild ass yeah. Guess, yeah. right
0: and who knows I might still come to the valuation of five million dollars right. i might right but I do it based on science and art
1: they just have art <laughs> no fair makes sense so let me ask a question so you know part of being here was talking, wanting to talk about your YouTube channel, what's it worth? So what got you to start a YouTube channel and, and how's, that, how's that played out for you? So
0: over the last three years, Matt, I had spent crazy, stupid money on marketing, about a quarter of a million dollars, which is a lot of money for me in just marketing, SEO, conferences, ads, Facebook, all kinds of shit I did. Mm-hmm. Results zero, but and I hired all kinds of people, and I think all digital marketing people are crooks, you know. So, (laughs) as we get into this, just be wary of digital. That's another podcast. Yeah, that's another podcast. Right, so that's that's a whole different session. Uh, But what I learned was two things: one, content is king, and video content is king of kings. And the second thing that's important in online marketing, digital marketing, or whatever fancy words they use nowadays is backlinks. Backlinks are almost like referrals or references back to you that, hey, if Matt is saying Bharat's a good guy as a backlink, Bharat's probably a good guy. Probably Probably a good guy. And if 15 Max Mats are saying that Bharat's a good guy, well, highly likely Bharat is a good guy, right? That's exactly how this works. And just Google has now become smart enough to do this in AI form. Um, so I said, you know what, the fuck with everything else. I'm just going to double down on video content. So that's what I did. So I doubled down on video content. Uh, it um, got my creative juices flowing. And, uh, you know, I I, I, was, I I have fun with it. And it opened up a lot of doors for me. Um, nice. You know, I'm an uh, advisor with UC Berkeley. I have my own column with Inc. Magazine. You know, I'm an advisor with uh, Micro Acquirer. So uh, it, it's done good things for me.
1: Very nice. So is, is what's it worth the number one key search term when somebody's looking for an appraiser? (laughs) Uh, Probably not. Probably not. (laughs) Sounds like it could be close.
0: (laughs) It could be, but what's it worth is just like a very colloquial term to say, hey, what do you think it's worth? What's it worth? What's that worth? So, so I have a
1: trademark, by the way. Um, Nice. So again, if you got to do it, you got to do it all the way. It's worth what a willing buyer and willing seller is willing to trade for it unless the IRS or someone else challenges it, right? (laughs) Or let them challenge. I mean, don't be afraid of the IRS. Let them channel. It's okay. (laughs) Very good. Very good. Brad, I appreciate your time. Any closing thoughts? Any closing statements? Anything that we didn't cover today? Anybody that they're thinking about hiring an appraiser? What they need to know about taking the first steps?
0: Um. Just like anything, right? Think of appraisal as a scorecard for your business, right? So when you go to school, you get a report card at the end of the semester, end of the year. How did Matt do in math or how did he do in uh, physical training or physical exercise or how did he do in Spanish or whatever language they teach you? And it also tells you that, hey, it needs improvement, you know, this, and then it tells you overall GPA. So evaluation is really your cumulative GPA. For your business. So you're working 60, 80 hours a week on your business. Have you increased your GPA or have you declined your GPA, your cumulative GPA? And that's what a valuation is. So everybody should be getting a valuation once a year. And yes, there is a conflict of interest when I say that, but that doesn't mean I'm wrong.
1: That's a good point. Hey, if you're building a business and you're trying to grow at the end of the day, uh, we all like, you know, as a kid, our parents would lean us against the wall and put the little mark over our head to see how we were growing. Everybody likes to keep track, right? So if you've decided to become a business owner, you have put yourself into this new sandbox and the way that you evaluate yourself and put that little mark on the wall is get an appraisal, see what it's worth, see if you've really increased the value of it over time, right? Hold yourself accountable. Precisely. I think that's a great a great way to explain that to people. So everybody, I appreciate you today being on the podcast. Uh, today it was Barat. Canadia. And I do not know why I've struggled saying that. I even wrote it down phonetically and I'm still having trouble saying Canadia. So Brat, thanks so much. Everybody, you can find them as What's It Worth on YouTube. And so thanks again. This is Matt Chancey. This is a Tax Alpha podcast. Until next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tax
0: Alpha Solutions brought to you by Matt Chansey. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guests and insight. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts.